Welcome to this podcast produced by the English Department here at Wellington College, which is designed to help and support you as you work towards your GCSE English Literature Examinations. In the next few minutes, I would like to take you through what I consider to be some of the key issues in our understanding of John Steinbeck's novella of Mice and Men. All of what I have to say today is relevant to both the experience of preparing for GCSE examination, in whatever form that comes, as well as your broader appreciation of the novella. Therefore, I would like to approach the text not as the subject of an examination, but as a piece of writing that is worthy of our attention and our appreciation in its own right. In ensuring that young people are prepared for the examinations and assessments they need to sit, it is sometimes easy to miss the point of reading a book or a poem, a play or whatever it may be, and I don't intend to make that mistake today. Before we get into the areas that I want to look at, it is also worth considering the idea of criticality itself for a moment, or, as we sometimes like to call it in the English classroom, did the writer really mean that? Traditional approaches to reading often centre on the idea of a writer at work, the idea that essentially paints the writer as a magical mixture of artist, builder and craftsman. This idea might also seem to suggest that the places, the storylines and the characters within the text are as puppets on a string, responsive only to the writer's touch. As an idea, this has obvious merit, not least in that the challenge to the reader is straightforward then. Reading is a matter of deduction. In the second part of the 20th century, a competing idea has emerged that a text, once written, is separate and distinct from its writer who can no longer claim ownership or control over it. Instead, it is a matter of reader and text. What matters, for the modern critic then, is reader and their perspective. What experiences and points of view does the modern reader bring to a text that may shape its meaning? After all, one's understanding of a text is a personal matter, constructed by oneself and for oneself. It is nobody else's business. Realistically, our reading of the novel today is going to be a combination of both. By offering you an insight into the writer himself, his life and his experiences, I hope to offer you a different way of seeing the text. What you make of it and what you take from it is up to you, naturally. But in considering the context in which Steinbeck was writing, as well as the methods he used, I'm sure that each of you will be able to come to a new and a fresher appreciation of the story and its characters. The first thing I would like to address is the issue of context, including some reflections on Steinbeck himself, elements of his early life, and how his experiences shaped some of his writing. Born and raised in Salinas, California, Steinbeck knew the rural town and its environs well. He knew its people, its geography and its character. A rural, largely agricultural community, the town is nestled in a small valley, no more than a frontier settlement really, set in some of the world's most fertile soil about 25 miles from the Pacific coast. Both valley and coast would serve as settings for some of his best-known writing. As a young man of college years, he spent summers working on nearby ranches and later with migrant workers on Spreckles sugar beet farms. And it was there he learned of the harsher aspects of the migrant's life and the darker side of human nature, 
which supplied them with material expressed in Mice and Men. Both of Steinbeck's parents encouraged him to develop a love for literature. His connection to books grew when an aunt gave him a copy of Mort d'Arthur, the 15th century retelling of the legend of King Arthur, for his ninth birthday. It is possible then that this was a book that gave the young Steinbeck a literary passion that he would follow for the rest of his life. Later on in life, he was asked to write the introduction for the Acts of King Arthur and his Noble Knights, and in this, Steinbeck wrote about his connection to Lancelot, Mordred, Galahad and the search for the Holy Grail, one that he had held since childhood. I think my sense of right and wrong, my feelings of noblesse oblige, and any thought I may have against the oppressor and for the oppressed came from this secret book, wrote Steinbeck. There was little in Steinbeck's early life that seemed to indicate that he would win the Pulitzer Prize or the Nobel Prize for Literature, as he later did. His parents, teachers and friends knew he had a modest degree of talent as a writer because they'd seen him writing in the margins of his father's used accounting ledgers or heard stories of dresses full of manuscripts. Few people, however, associated Steinbeck with success. He was tall, awkward, gangly. He didn't join social groups or clubs and he constantly worried about his looks. Lacking social grace, Steinbeck came to embrace his role as a class loudmouth or a local prankster. After high school, he attended Stanford on and off for six years, but never actually graduated. He attended classes sporadically and seemed to relish his status as a bit of a bohemian. Now, as I've already mentioned, when Steinbeck needed money for his college tuition, he worked on some of the local ranches doing manual labour, for example, he worked on a dredging crew at the sugar beet plant. Through this work, Steinbeck met hobos, homeless men, factory workers and migrant fruit pickers, listened, soaking up their stories. And as he gained experience outside of the classroom, his writing began to reflect those experiences. Edith Ronald Mirrilees, his English professor at Stanford, convinced him that he needed discipline to succeed as a writer. And acting as his first editor, she used to edit and cross out some of his more inflated phrases, encourage him to write shorter, more powerful sentences packed with truth. You might say that this experience was crucial in nurturing Steinbeck's talent, which was to turn the real world into a fascinating visual image that gave his readers a compelling glimpse into the lives of others. So here then we have the foundations of his life as a writer. He was deeply affected by the sense of good and evil that permeated Mark d'Arthur. He was a loner who may have felt more connected to people who lived on the outskirts of society than those who lived in the mainstream. He had an ambitious mother and a chronically disappointed and depressed father who spent hours walking the hills of Salinas with his son. He learned in college that he would need discipline to succeed as a writer. And, most importantly, Steinbeck knew his characters because he had worked alongside them. When it came time to write, he wrote the stories he knew best. In a letter to George Albee, a friend from Salinas, in 1933, Steinbeck wrote, I think I would like to write the story of this whole valley, of all the little towns and all the farms and the ranches in the wilder hills. I can see how I would like to do it, so that it would be the valley of the world. This sentiment is evident right from the beginning of the book. Steinbeck opens the story in the lush, verdant, slow-cooling evening of a hot day just south of Soledad, California. Two men, George and Lenny, arrive at a warm green pool of the Salinas River. 
Though the area around the pool appears still and utterly peaceful, there are tracks from rabbits, raccoons, lizards and other animals and an ash pile left behind by the fires made by ranch hands and tramps who frequent the pool. There is life everywhere in this Edenic setting, and it seems that Steinbeck wants his reader to recognise, above all, the advantageousness of the place, its fertility and its richness. This is his river and his valley. He knows this place and places like it. The tender, almost sentimental tone with which he describes the Gabalan Mountains and its foothills seems rather at odds, then, with the narrative that follows. But this is maybe understandable, given Steinbeck's deep fondness for the countryside of his youth. In 1930, Steinbeck married his first wife, Carol, and settled in the family cottage in Pacific Grove, about 20 miles from Salinas, right on the rugged Pacific coast. During the early years of their marriage, the young couple relied on small loans, Carol's typing income and $25 a month from Steinbeck's father. Steinbeck lost his mother to a stroke in 1934 and then his father died shortly afterwards in 1935. And in the meantime, a manuscript for his first novel, Tortilla Flat, was rejected numerous times and he lost the manuscript to another novel, The Red Pony. Finally, after years of struggle, Pascal Kovici offered to publish Tortilla Flat and reissue Steinbeck's earlier books. When he received the royalties from Tortilla Flat, Steinbeck took a three-month trip to Mexico with his wife, Carol. He was exhausted when he left California. He'd lost both of his parents. He'd lived through the Great Depression of 1929 to 1933. His writing wasn't popular and his relationship with Carol was strained because she felt that he had neglected her to attend to his writing. He enjoyed their time in Mexico, but it was one of the last times Steinbeck could travel with a guarantee of being anonymous. When he returned to California, Steinbeck learned that Tortilla Flat had become a commercial success. He was famous, and Of Mice and Men was published just two years later, in 1937. Despite the fact that, in his writings, Steinbeck often took himself out of the picture, much like a scientist, to observe his characters without moralising about them, his themes were often a source of anger, contention and mistrust. One reason Steinbeck eventually left California was that he was seen as a source of friction between ranch owners and workers. Even his favourite little sister, Mary, broke off with him for a while over political disagreements. Of course, no consideration of the context of the novel would be complete without an assessment of the title itself. Famously, of course, the title of the novel, Of Mice and Men, was inspired by Robbie Burns' poem, in which a field mouse is flattened by a plough during harvest. Written by Burns, after he'd turned over the nest of a tiny mouse with his plough, Burns was a farmer, and farmers are generally far too busy to be concerned with the health of mice. This poem is another illustration of Burns' tolerance for all creatures and maybe by extension his innate humanity. Although, according to legend, Burns was ploughing the fields and accidentally destroyed the nest, which it needed to survive the winter. The novel itself is set in 1930s California in the aftermath of the Great Depression and in a world where Jim Crow laws legislated against any kind of opportunity for black workers. The reader is encouraged to see each of the characters in the novel as a field mouse from the poem. Marginalised and segregated from the rest of society, the men on the ranch are oppressed in every conceivable way, and it is therefore inevitable, in Steinbeck's view, that they have become cruel and aloof, hostile to each other, as they struggle to survive in a world that holds them as of little more importance than animals. 
Secondly, I would like to explore the narrative voice that Steinbeck uses in the novel. Storytellers have great power, and they can shape action and character with just a few words. And there aren't many writers who have been more convicted of this power than Steinbeck, as he says himself. If there is a magic in story writing, and I am convinced that there is, no one has ever been able to reduce it to a recipe that can be passed from one person to another. The formula seems to lie solely in the aching urge of the writer to convey something he feels important to his reader. More than anything, Steinbeck wanted to tell the story of the disenfranchised, the outcast and the loner. Following World War I, crop prices plunged, forcing farmers to expand their farms and buy more equipment to make up for the shortfall. This situation was exacerbated when a severe drought crippled much of the American West, and when the stock market plummeted in the historic crash of 1929, an already difficult situation for farmers and farm workers quickly grew considerably worse. When the market crashed, farmers just couldn't pay back the debts they'd built up in buying more land and equipment, and as a result, many farmers and farm workers migrated to California in hopes of finding enough work to live. Labourers often work for pitiful wages without the support of unions or the stability of knowing their job will be secure in the future. Families were torn apart, whilst at the same time, strange new allegiances were made, such as the intense but difficult to describe bond between Lenny and George. And the point of view used by Steinbeck in the novel of Mice and Men is a third-person omniscient narrator, an objective narrator. This means that the narrative is not given by a character within the story. Instead, it is given by some all-knowing and all-seeing observer. There's something quite confrontational about this narrative approach, in a way, as if the narrator is speaking directly to the reader. It also means that the narrator knows everything about the characters and the plot itself. Stomach seems to use this point of view to ensure that the story will be told objectively, without condemning or condoning any of the actions of the characters. He leaves that up to the reader. The narrator provides detailed information in a sequential manner, always moving the plot forward. Structurally, there are no flashbacks nor any instances of self-analysis or aside that may show partiality towards the thoughts of one character or another. The action continues at the same steady pace from beginning to end, maybe reflecting the relentlessness of life in this world and the inevitability, therefore, of the ending. Let's look more closely at an example from the text now. Notice in this extract how this third-person, omniscient and objective narrator describes the beginning of the journey of George and Lenny. Take note of the distant but detached tone. They had walked in single file down the path, and even in the open one stayed behind the other. Both were dressed in denim trousers and in denim coats with brass buttons, both wore black shapeless hats and both carried tight blanket rolls slung over their shoulders. The first man was small and quick, dark of face with restless eyes and sharp, strong features. Every part of him was defined, small, strong hands, slender arms, a thin and bony nose. Behind him walked his opposite, a huge man, shapeless of face, with large, pale eyes with wide, sloping shoulders, and he walked heavily, dragging his feet a little, the way a bear drags his paws. His arms did not swing at his sides, 
but hung loosely. It may feel odd to think that the narrator in Of Mice and Men is detached, considering the close connection that Steinbeck has with the places and the characters that he's created here. We also acquire various insights into the life of each character through this description. They walk in single file, suggesting there is a distinct hierarchy in their friendship. One is following the other. The denim uniform they both wear marks them out as migrant workers. Their black shapeless hats are pitiful and serve only to keep the sun from their brow. They don't wear the handsome Stetsons of the boss or Slim. Their tight blanket rolls are pathetic, the sum total of their possessions in this world, rolled tight, not to keep things from falling out, but to keep acquisitive outsiders from taking advantage of them. This is a demonstration also of Steinbeck's talent for characterisation. Not only do we learn about the characters' mannerisms and behaviour from the way they look and act, but also from their appearance and their movements. The detachment of the narrative voice gives a sense of authority to the description, whereby the reader feels that they recognise and even know these characters, something that couldn't be achieved as effectively by an unreliable or first-person narrator. We see this again in the character of Slim. Arguably the most impressive and agreeable character in the whole novel, Slim's distinguishing aspect is his selflessness, his sympathy, as well as his sense of honour. He's compassionate towards George for having to look after Lenny and is the only person that Curly treats with any kind of respect. Maybe this is because Slim is absolutely everything that Curly isn't. Charismatic, selfless, kind, loyal, highly intelligent, calm, fearless, Slim is the quintessential frontiersman. Maybe even the kind of heroic figure that the American public was looking for in the post-depression era. Interestingly, as well as endowing him with all of the physical capabilities necessary to survive in this hard, harsh world, Steinbeck bestows on Slim a humanity and a compassion that escapes everyone else in the novel, even George. A tall man stood in the doorway. He held a crushed Stetson hat under his arm while he combed his long, black, damp hair straight back. Like the others, he wore blue jeans and a short denim jacket, when he had finished combing his hair, he moved into the room and he moved with a majesty only achieved by royalty and master craftsmen. He was a jerk-lined skinner, the prince of the ranch capable of driving ten, sixteen, even twenty mules with a single line to the leaders. He was capable of killing a fly on the wheel of butt with a bullwhip without touching the mule. There was a gravity in his manner and a quiet so profound that all talk stopped when he spoke. His authority was so great that his word was taken on any, any subject, be it politics or love. This was Slim, the jerk-lined Skinner. His hatchet face was ageless. He might have been 35 or 50. His ear heard more than was said to him, and his slow speech had overtones not of thought, but of understanding beyond thought. His hands, large and lean, were as delicate in their action as those of a temple dancer. Just as before, the reader feels assured by the cool objectivity of the narrative voice, picking up a huge amount of Axelin straight away. We find out that he is capable of driving 10, 16, maybe an even greater number of horses without any trouble, and is therefore respected for both his physical prowess and his capability as a worker. His role as jerkline Skinner emphasises this but maybe also acts as a metaphor for his ability to bring together a disparate group of men and get them to work as a team. 
Steinbeck's use of the language of royalty sets him apart from the other men too, indicating that they see him as at the top of the hierarchy, whereas his crushed Stetson and blue jeans and denim mark him out as having a foot in both camps. He's respected by both the workers and the boss. On the one hand, he wears a Stetson like the boss, and like Curly. On the other hand, it is crushed, showing that he's a working man, something that is reinforced by the blue denim of his work attire. His compassion is evident immediately too, when he remarks that there ain't many guys that travel around together. He has a compassion for George and Lenny, which separates him from everyone else that we as readers meet. Allied to his understanding beyond thought, we are presented with someone vastly different to anyone else on the ranch. He offers no judgment, nor seeks to belittle. Simbeck saves the best for last. There was a gravity in his manner and a quiet so profound that all talk stopped when he spoke. His authority was so great that his word was taken on any subject. All these are attributes of a leader, someone to be respected, of course, and the use of gravity becomes a metaphor for his position at the centre of life on the ranch, speaking of the pull he exerts over others through his charismatic presence. So, the fact that Of Mice and Men is told by an objective third-person omniscient narrator allows Steinbeck to infuse the story with detail and nuance that shapes the reader's understanding, not only of the characters themselves, but of the world in which they live. And of course, Steinbeck gleaned all this from his time working on ranches like the one in the novel, alongside men like the ones we meet in the story. It is as if Steinbeck himself is speaking to us sharing a great truth about the world with his reader. Thirdly, and just for a few minutes now at the end of my talk, I'd like to consider the novel as a tragedy, a piece of drama set not on the stage but in the Californian countryside. Usually, one's consideration of tragedy hinges on the appreciation of the part played by the hero, the central character whose fall from grace forms the main thread of the plot. In his celebrated essay, Tragedy in the Common Man, Arthur Miller, the American playwright, suggested that the tragic feeling is evoked in us when we are in the presence of a character who is ready to lay down his life, if need be, to secure one thing, his sense of personal dignity. This speaks to the nature of the hero, the protagonist of the piece, the character who is both central to the narrative and who pays the ultimate price at the end. Miller then goes on to explore further the issue of weakness in the heroic protagonist. In Aristotelian tragedy, the hero is undone by his hamartia, commonly understood to mean a fatal flaw, a fault line in character usually unrecognised by and beyond the control of the hero. This fatal flaw becomes more and more evident as the story unfolds until such time as it undoes the hero completely, resulting not only in his downfall but also in his death. This intense climax to the narrative is referred to as catharsis, offering the audience a chance to purge themselves of all the emotions that have been building throughout the story. Miller sees things slightly differently. He says, The flaw or crack in the character is really nothing, and need be nothing, but his inherent unwillingness to remain passive in the face of what he conceives to be a challenge to his dignity, his image of his rightful status. Essentially, Miller sees the hero's flaw as an inherently noble thing, even if it leads them to dismay and inevitable destruction. So, back to the text. How does all this help us to make sense of Steinbeck's novel, then? 
clearly, in line with Miller's views, Steinbeck is writing more about the common man than he is about kings and royalty, as Aristotle would have done. And it's easy to see how several characters fit the bill in terms of striving to maintain their dignity in the face of oppression and difficulty. George himself, you could argue, is facing a constant battle to maintain his own dignity in the face of obstructive and hostile forces. Right from the beginning of the novel, we see him manage a range of issues from unhelpful bus drivers and employment agencies to suspicious employers and inhospitable management on the ranch, let alone the fact he's also trying to eke out a living for himself whilst taking care of Lenny. What is clear at all times is that he refuses to sacrifice what Miller describes as his personal dignity. The boss, eventually and reluctantly, recognises this when they arrive at the ranch. Slim, too, appreciates this when he meets George and Lenny. Even Curly and his wife curtail their normal histrionics when faced with his calm and composed resolve. Obviously, the end of the novel comes when George shoots Lenny in the back of the head. There is no doubt that this is a tragic act. It pulls at the reader's heartstrings for many reasons, not least because of George's unrelenting care for Lenny throughout the novel. The fact that Lenny would probably have met his end on the riverbank regardless doesn't seem to soften the blow to the reader in any way. But George doesn't die. To be considered a heroic figure, the protagonist must pay the ultimate price himself, and whilst there is no doubt that George pays a heavy, heavy price in taking the shot himself, he finishes the story arguably better off. He loses Lenny, but gains a new friend in Slim. By any measure, then, George cannot necessarily be considered a tragic hero. Lenny is a different proposition to George, largely because he's not really in control of any part of his life. He follows George blindly, trusting completely and utterly in him. He is unaware, to a large degree, of the danger and threat that are deflected away from him by George. In terms of satisfying the criteria for tragedy, so far as Miller is concerned, it's difficult to ascribe heroic status to Lenny because he cannot exercise the will required for heroic sacrifice. He is not responsible for himself, even the most basic of senses, so how can he then make a decision to lay down his life for his own dignity or exercise the necessary will to resist those who challenge or threaten him? Of course, it's Lenny's death that brings to close the tragic arc of the novel, so it's easy to see why some might hold him to be a tragic figure. But in fact, you could argue that he falls short of this standing in the novel. In fact, his actions lead to what Aristotle terms the catastrophe, the sudden and irreversible change of fortune that leads to the culmination of the plot. In truth, Lenny's death is no more significant in the harsh and unforgiving world of the ranch than the death of Candy's dog or Curly's wife. This may seem harsh, but just as Candy's dog and Curly's wife are identified in terms of their relationship to another, Lenny is really only seen as George's companion and cannot really be considered as a fully rounded or complete character in his own right. There are, of course, many other characters who may lay claim to being tragic in some way, shape or form. Candy's physical disability leads to a constant battle to hold his own and justify his existence. His loneliness makes him seem more noble, but as with George, he cannot truly be considered heroic in any way. Curly's wife, who does die towards the end of the story, could also be seen as a tragic figure in many ways. She also is lonely, isolated, facing a constant battle to assert her own right to exist. She's marginalised not only because of her sex, but also through the vindictiveness of her husband. Her whole life, you could argue, is one long struggle for recognition as a human being, worthy of being treated as such, but she too, in turn, falls victim to the harsh and unforgiving nature of the world in which she lives. Even Crooks, in some ways the most dignified of the characters in the novel, is not truly a heroic figure. His segregation and quiet resilience are noble, of that there is no doubt, 
and his existence is fraught with danger and difficulty in a way that the other men do not appreciate. The fragility of his existence is shown in stark terms in the way that Curly's wife threatens him on a whim, almost in passing, just because he is the only one on the ranch over whom she has any power. Ultimately, however, he survives, whereas Lenny and Curly's wife do not. Disenfranchised, disregarded and disparaged he may be, but he clings on to life and some small sense of self, and in doing so resists any claim that we may make to consider him a tragic hero. But still, my conviction remains that this is, in the truest sense, a tragedy. And so I wonder if we might take a different view on matters here. Maybe it's not any of the characters who play the part of a tragic hero. Maybe it's mankind itself that is the tragic subject of the novel. Maybe this is a tragedy of human nature rather than a cautionary tale of a man and his fall from grace. The majority of the characters in the novel are in stasis. The world around them limits them, resulting in almost no discernible way at all to improve their lives. The lack of love and friendship in the world also contributes to them being stuck in the place that we find them, and there is an inevitability about the hopelessness that pervades the entire narrative. The tragedy lies in the fact that even the lowliest and weakest in society are exploited by their fellow man. It is as if the struggle for survival trumps everything, including the willingness to show or share human warmth. Most of the characters represent common social ills of the time, and as a result, the reader finds it hard to warm to them because of their shortcomings. Candy represents those who have outlived their usefulness, an old, infirm labourer who offers nothing in an intensely physical world, and so becomes a drain on those around him as he can't support himself. Crooks is the very epitome of outcast, prevented from making any kind of life for himself because he is black. He, too, relies on those around him for any kind of sustenance, in much the same way as Candy does. One of the reasons we find them together in the barn with Lenny in Chapter 4 is that, at that moment, the three of them are social pariah, unwelcome even within their own caste because of their age, their infirmity and their colour. Even Curly fits in with this pattern, representing the arrogant but inept. Born with advantage, he has neither the will nor the moral fibre to make anything of the start he has in life and is destined to fall by the wayside eventually. The only character who seems to stand out in any way from this pattern in Steinbeck's characterisation is Slim. Through him, I think we find clarity. And I'm going to let him have the last word in this consideration of the novel. Slim looked through George and beyond him. Ain't many guys travel around together, he mused. I don't know why. Maybe everybody in the whole damn world is scared of each other. Human nature is attuned, or above all else, to survival. In a world such as this, that need supersedes anything else, and as a result, the men in it become introverted, suspicious and hostile. Slim, however, sees and understands things that the others don't, even George. On hearing of the friendship between George and Lenny, he is immediately won over to George. He warms to him and obviously sees something that he can respect. But there is also a sadness and a distance in his words. Slim offers an insight that escapes all of the other men. It is as if Slim knows that this friendship is doomed, that it won't last on the ranch. If we're to pursue this reading of the novella as a tragedy of human nature, you could therefore read Slim's musing here as a moment of anagnorisis, a moment where ignorance is turned to knowledge. In a darkly ironic twist, however, that knowledge seems to lead into the belief that despite George's best efforts, the world they live in is just too hostile and too threatening 
for George and Lenny's friendship to survive. Lenny's death is tragic, as we've already discussed, but it becomes even more so, as it is the moment where friendship, humanity and hope also die. George realises in a moment of deep sadness that there is no escape from what Lenny has done, and if he doesn't kill him, then Curly almost certainly will. He's left with no choice. And even though he knows that Lenny didn't do what he did on purpose, he knows there is no way to end the chain of events that has been started, other than to shoot Lenny himself. Instead of compassion and kindness, the world of mice and men is characterised by animalistic savagery, a desire for blood and vengeance whenever any slight, no matter how incidental, is perceived as a challenge to one's very existence. Steinbeck shows us a world where mankind has forgotten himself and the very ties that bind human beings together. Just as the field mouse was churned up by the plough, so too are the men on the ranch churned up and destroyed. And that is the real tragedy of, of mice and men.